I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, 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 and welcome to the Indie Football Podcast. In the absence of editor, leader, legend Ed Malian, I'm your host today, Jack Pitbrook. I'm joined by our chief football writer, Miguel Delaney. Hello, Miguel. Hello. Chief sports writer Jonathan Liu. Hello, Hi, Jonathan. Hi. And we're pleased to bring today's big guest, Tony Evans, former football editor of the Times, now a freelance writer and author, uh, with a new book out. Hi, Tony. Ah, oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks a lot. So first, we're going to start with Old Trafford. Yeah. We all know what happened. If you're listening to the podcast, you'll definitely have seen the goals. Miguel, was this a big vindication for Jose Mourinho? Um, much sure I go that far. Uh, I mean, I think basically it brought out what, was, what, what still remains best in Mourinho. I think it, uh, he, you know, for, he spotted the weakness in the other team, got his team to rootly exploit them, and uh, United defended quite well. I think Baye made some difference to their back. I, that, I think that was actually pretty key, maybe in terms of the United season and what's going to happen going forward uh, as well, in the sense that that defence just, I mean, all Mourinho teams have been built on good defences. And that defence looks so much shakier when it's Smalling or and Jones there rather than Bailly, despite the own goal. Would you say it was the best the best you've seen anyone try and stop Liverpool for a while? Probably, yeah. And also, actually, I mean, we did a piece in October before the awful nil all. It was actually it was finally United Liverpool game, which something happened. I mean, I, I don't know what you think about this, Tony, but. I, I, I mean, it's been so long since that match has actually had a bit of spark to it. Oh yeah, especially during Mourinho's tenure, mm. because you know two nil nils and one one one. Yeah, and um, and he just he came to kill those games. This one, he had a plan mm. to try and get get forwards as well to try and score. I think it made a big difference. I thought um, I thought it was a, quite a good performance from United, and uh, I agree with you. Bay's going to make a huge difference to them at the back, and uh, I thought I thought they they, they set up really cleverly. And, you know, using matter in the role he used, mm. I didn't think he would do. Yeah. And I didn't think matter could do it. Yeah, true, true. Um, although it's one thing as well about, I suppose, when a Mourinho team goes ahead, it kind of had licence then to do what he really loves and stick two midfielders in front of the defence. I think he, it's, he, it's been described as his travot. Mm-hmm. Uh, the high-pressure triangle. Yeah, the high-pressure triangle, yeah. But that was, I mean, from there, like United were... And the thing as well he did, which is a really simple thing, and I don't understand why people don't do it to Liverpool more. Mm. I don't understand why they don't do it to City. Go long, drop the ball on the, the edge of the centre, yeah. especially Lovren, and see what happens. Yeah, and he, his quotes after the game were telling Mourinho in that regard that Lukaku really fancied it on the mm. day. He thought, he thought he had the beating of Lovren. I'd fancy it, to yeah. be honest. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion as well after the game about how you know, Liverpool had so much possession and that. but And you know, you know only one team came to play, but I mean... Why would you play into Liverpool's hands? Are we are we back into Brendan Rodgers' territory of pointless possession? Yeah, you know it's uh, possession with a purpose is the only thing that matters. Yeah, well, I think I mean I saw I only saw the highlights. So, uh, but I, I think unless Manchester United created hapless of chances when when the you know the highlight that, that weren't shown on the highlights, you know they played like 
uh, well, they played like they had a, a very specific plan to to stick it on the head of Lovren, and Lukaku was pretty destructive, I thought. Uh, and we saw once again that Mourinho gets he gets quite a kick out of coming up with bespoke plans for these games, yeah. and especially against a team like Liverpool. I think he's he's always had a certain certain thing about beating Liverpool, and mm. he is he is essentially and, and Klopp actually and Klopp exactly. Yeah. So he, he adjusted. Klopp still has his principles, but United have the three points. So who really got the last laugh there? Do you think it's a game? Do you think this is a United performance that they can build on from into, ne- into next year and beyond, or do you think it's just a kind of it's a one-off special plan? Well, that's what the game felt like a little bit because of the form going into the game, where the two teams were, as if and because it it was ultimately just a battle for second place, so it didn't mean that much in the greater scheme of things. But it almost felt like more important to what's going to happen next and and going forward, and also. From about three weeks ago, where it looked like there were kind of problems at United again, the, the Pogba stuff, the game, it's, and the Pogba stuff hasn't completely gone away. I, I, he, he was genuinely injured the weekend, obviously, though. But, uh, you know, the draw, it's a few game, how they played, even the first half against Palace. But now, three, three wins in a row, two of, the game, two of them against other top six sides. And I thought yesterday, or sorry, Sunday, or Saturday even, was the uh, best performance of all three by a, by a long way. Well, yeah, I mean, I think I think reports of Mourinho's demise have been greatly exaggerated. Uh, you know, they, they are second in the league and they're still in the Champions League. They haven't been playing the greatest football, but you know, they've, they've done all right. They should have been. They should be closer to City. And I thought, uh, I mean, almost everyone he's bought since he arrived there has been huge strapping six footers, and I thought they were going to physically bully the likes of City, and they haven't done that. Yeah. And they didn't even physically bully Liverpool. Well, apart from Lukaku, but. Um, you know, there's still a work in progress, but you know, it's probably because we expect so much of Mourinho. Besides, yeah. well, that's probably. I mean, ultimately, this goes back to his peak. And I think, I mean, when you write something about Mourinho, or when we have discussions like this, always you're, 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 the argument is always, "Oh, you're saying he's finished." I don't think I don't, I don't think he's finished at all. I would just say that his best qualities aren't necessarily the best qualities in football anymore, and mm. he's been kind of taken over. But but that's not to say he can still be usually effective as. A Saturday show, basically. Is it too early to say that this is a game? This game will help to define who who are City's main challengers next season. Uh, probably, yeah. I think it depends on the summer. At least you, you still that thing about Liverpool as well, in the sense that they're, you know, I think the Klopp era is very obviously very positive. He's made progress, and the fact there's an excitement about every game is inherently a good thing as as a supporter. But you just feel like you can't fully trust them. To, to, well, I mean, I mean, one of the things the game showed up was the weakness in midfield. Everyone talks about the goalkeeper and the defence and the, the full-backs, because mm. it's all obvious. But, you know, that central midfield area is still a problem. Protecting those centre-earths is an issue, mm. and he hasn't addressed that. When they're going forward, the greys. But, you know, the minute they start to backpedal and you get behind them, then the, the, they've got problems and... You know, everyone points to the stats and say, oh, you know, they haven't conceded many goals this season. But you look at the goals they've conceded against t- top four mm. sides. Any time they come up against a good team, they've, <coughs> you know, they've struggled a little bit. Um, and I think uh, I think that's got to be an issue unless he strengthens that midfield. People think Chiesa's going to make a big difference. But he's another forward goal player. Mm. Do you think they need a, a, a new, better holding midfielder for next season? Oh, without a doubt, without a doubt. I mean, Emery Shan just isn't mobile and mobile enough for this division. I think it's hard to separate the, the quality of the defence from the tactics that, that Klopp has them playing. I mean, time and again, you see, you see them defending on the back pedal, essentially. And even good, even good players are going to struggle when they're, <coughs> when they're defending, running back towards their goal the whole time, as, as they are so often. 
I think this is a really interesting issue with, with Klopp and Liverpool is are the defensive problems in the team, are they a function of the individual players not being good enough or is it because he's too open and too attacking? I don't really know what the answer is. Well, you know what? My view is simple. That defence is the easiest position, the, has got the easiest positions to fill and to organise. You've just got to work on it on the training grounds. I, I think if you give... Rafa Benitez, for example, and every Liverpool fan will start screaming because you, you can either like Klopp or you can not hmm. like, like Benitez. It's ridiculous. But if you give Benitez this defence, they'll be well organised. Give them that midfield and they'll be well organised. Give them their attack and they won't score as many goals. <laughs> it's as simple as that. But you know what? I mean, it, it, it goes back to Brendan Rodgers and it goes back to beyond that. It goes back to the recruitment thing. I remember in 2014 um, when, when Rodgers was looking for a defender in January, uh, I asked a very senior member at the club, I said, why aren't they going, looking for defenders? They were after Salah at the time. And, um, and he said, oh, there are no defenders out there. There are no defenders out there. You know, it's, um, there are loads of defenders. <laughs> how, much, how much has the signing of Van Dijk improved Liverpool's defence? He, he's um, a bit. Um, not enough uh, for the money they paid. He's big, he's, he's, he's mobile, he's quick. He's, he's a talker, which is the best thing in an organiser, which, considering that it's an almost silent area, that, you yeah. know, the, the, the keeper doesn't talk. Well, Carrius does a bit more, but Mignolet didn't. And there's not a great deal of communication. Again, that's one of those things where you need someone to drag those central midfielders back, to make sure the keeper's in position, to, you know, to make sure the full-backs don't push up too much. So we will improve them. But I think he's going to need more a couple of players around him. And it's interesting that there, there's been quite a few sides Target and uh, Trent Alexander-Arnold yeah. over the yeah. last few weeks, uh, months, and um, you know the kid's got loads of potential, but he's not a natural fullback. He mightn't be a natural midfielder. He, mm, he might fall in the can, gaps. Can that be damaging to a young player when that happens? Actually, I mean, I, I remember it with Kieran Gibbs, where he had two kind of horror displays against United in 0809. Um, now, the Champions League semi-final, yeah, he went off in at half-time in yeah, tears. Yeah, obviously for, there was a spell where he became kind of Arsenal's uh, starting fullback. But do you think that can have any sort of long-term yeah, damage? When thinking, they're, they're, it's that early in the career and that obviously... Callum Chambers has never recovered from a really bad game he had up against Jefferson Montero yeah. about f in his towards the end of his first season at Arsenal. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm more or less certain that uh, those young players never recovered from being coached by Arsene Wenger. Um, <laughs> but there's, there's a bit of the same thing going on with Klopp there, you know. It's like, yeah. if you're an attacking player, you want to go to Klopp yeah. because you'll get, get it all out here. If you're a defender, you know, might not be the best place for you. I yeah. think, I mean, I'm a big fan of Alexander-Arnold. I, I would take him over Gomez any day of the week. I think he's, he's good. there's a lot to work with there. And... It's, it doesn't necessarily have to be a big blow to him. He, he's clearly got, got done like a kipper by Rashford for the first goal. He's, he's committed himself too early. Those are the things you would hope he learns with experience. Those are the, the sort of games that he learns from. And if, it, if, if you're looking for a manager who's going to kind of pump him up and, and keep his confidence high, then you, you, you know, Klopp is the, the sort of guy who's going to do that. Actually, on that point, uh, and especially in relation to Mourinho and his status, I mean, it's like if you're saying if you're, a, if you're an attacking player, you go to uh, Klopp. If you're a defender, then... Is Mourinho still the one to get the best out? He probably is. Maybe maybe Simeone. But mm. you know you're going to grow. If you're a centre-half, you know you're going to grow on Mourinho's side. Yeah, yeah. And, and if Rafa was at a good club, mm. you know, he'd be the same. But it, it's interesting about whether... He, you know, it, 
sometimes games like this are, are, are a crossroads. I remember in 1978, I'm that old, <laughs> 1978, ancient history to you lot. Um, Hansen having a nightmare at Old Trafford, yeah. was responsible for two goals. And, you know, he, he talks about it himself as being the game when he realised that he had to do more than just go out on the pitch and, you know, use his athleticism and use his ability to play football at the highest level. And he had to crack down and work even harder. So hopefully Alexander-Arnold will do that, mm. have a think about himself and whether he's getting coached or not, say to himself, if I want to be a, a top player at this level, I've got to do these things. Actually, there's a good piece in that. Atrocious games actually were the makings of players rather than the, uh, the destruction of them. <laughs> I mean, it's the difference between playing a game and playing a match. And I think Mourinho <coughs> teams play the play it as a match. Would, as, sorry, can you unpack that a bit? Yeah. I th- well, th- I suppose this goes back to the old argument about process versus result. Whereas I think Klopp teams, Pochettino teams, Wenger teams, they play the game as a, as a sort of continuous process right, of which... Right the game is merely a 90-minute snapshot. Whereas for if you're playing in a Mourinho side, zero to 90 minutes is really all that, that counts. That's your, that's your performance time. And, and so while you may not improve quite so much, you are, I think you become a smarter match player in those sort of sides than you do playing in a, in a team where it's all part of a, you know, an ongoing evolutionary process. That's the most, sorry, that, that's the most interesting... Um, or that, that's the best explanation or description I've ever heard of the phrase winning football matches <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I, well, I'd take it to stage further I mean for example Juventus last week at Wembley mm. you know they win in the game for you know sort of 60 minutes and the, you know at the point where it looked as if they folded they got niggly yeah. you know, they just disrupted everything and Tottenham's attention just wandered just for a second and boom they're in there you know and um, there's a certain kind of beautiful cynicism about it which um, which I appreciate yeah. you know I'm, uh, I enjoy watching that and Mourinho teams do that well even in relation to um, to that issue and it's always <coughs> sorry this old hat quote unquote your dad argument about having mm. leaders in the team but you, even recently I remember Ian, Ian Wright telling me that basically when he was in that Arsenal team Tony no matter if the game was kind of tight or 1-0 Tony Adams just knew to send the call out right we all dropped 10 yards earn the win lads earn the win mm. and I, I, it does, that, that makes a massive difference with him in such situations oh yeah yeah without a doubt I mean the, the, the idea of leadership and especially with young players like mm. Alexander Arnold you know He's, he's, you know, he's obviously having a, a shocker there. He's apologised on Twitter. I mean, which tends, tells me that no one said to him either during the game or after. You know, like one, get your head right. Two, afterwards, don't worry about it. Learn from it. Hmm. You know, don't brood on it. And you need you need someone with experience who's been there and who can who could you know who's been through the nightmare, who've lived the nightmare, and can say to you, look next time and and also when you're under pressure like Tony Adams who was, who was one of the best I've ever seen at it who would say to everyone hey you knuckle down right let's do it yeah there seem to be so there aren't from what Tony was saying there's not many teams out there who play like that now like even Manchester City don't even Pep they, Hammer is a process yeah, yeah they don't they don't manage games like that yeah. they play the same way all the time but fortunately for them they're so good that they never have to change and they they can always end up winning but yeah it seems like lots of other teams short of City try, try and play like them fall in the gap yeah but even even now this might be just a line Guardiola has but even when he was asked recently about kind of breaking records this season hitting the hundred points or whatever and he just he just sort of dismissed all that no no we just we just keep doing doing what we do um, whereas I think. Would other managers really ch- actually chase the defeat? Well, I mean, Wenger definitely chased the unbeaten record. Mm. I, I mean, I think that one of the problems that Guardiola will have at some point 
you know, we've seen it with loads of teams over the years. The way ahead of everyone, mm. every year, maybe two, and then everyone works out what they do and catches up. Mm. And unless they've got a change up in the process, then they get caught. Yeah. Do you do you think that will happen in City next season? I think there's a fair chance of it. Yeah, yeah. I think everyone will. Um, I've seen what they do, and we'll be looking. I think everyone will be looking at the high press and say, you know, let's let's not try and play out against them. But people are still trying to play out against yeah. them. It's madness. People will be hoovering the ball long. You know, there'll be a lot of route one going on. Um, try and get into that midfield area. You know, where they want, when they've got the front four committed, and um, and and I think that they will. They'll catch actually, them. It, it, it always is, happens. It is amazing though how late teams seem to cut on to that. I remember it was actually a big discussion in the Leicester season as well, where it was only until the last four or five games of the season, and it was eventually won, when people realised, hang on, why are we? We shouldn't go out against the team because we're just playing into their hands. And like, but, but like the damage is already done to the campaign. And the Conte season last season. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Oh, like is that is that ego in the part of the managers? And well, no, we're we're going to be the ones to to burst their bubble. Managers are very stubborn when it comes to things like this. Yeah. That. The, you know, they're not they're not malleable to circumstances in the way that you would expect, you know, in business, for example. It's mm. funny because given how much how much money almost all Premier League teams will now spend on their analysis and scouting teams, if you're a chief executive and you're seeing and you're spending all this money on on mm. scouting, and then you're seeing your manager say, "No, don't worry about it. We're going to go and play our natural game." You'd be tearing <laughs> your hair out. No. I, I I mean, my view would be just stop them any way you can. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, Back to Liverpool, this is something you kind of touched on earlier, Tony. How would you compare this Liverpool team to the 2013-14 team? Uh, they don't have a genuine superstar uh, like Suarez, who can, uh, you know, sort of in the top three and the mm. four in the world. They don't have that. I mean, Salah's great, and he's had a massive impact. But he's, he's not the sort of player who, um, you know, sort of will dominate a game, dominate the pace of a game, change the entire game itself. Mm. You know, uh, when, when everything's going at 100 miles an hour and the ball's getting played in, he's going to be brilliant. But he's not that sort of player. I think uh, I, I, I think the difference is Suarez. Suarez was, you know, just... That, that year he was exceptional. And you would expect a player of that calibre and uh, at that point in his career to drag a team to the title. And somehow they managed to... Um, some of the men to slip up somewhere. <laughs> do you do you think that this this Liverpool team will be able to win the league under Klopp? I think that's a it's a very big ask at the moment. Uh, I, that one of the things about Klopp which gets me is there's still a great sense of freshness about him as if yeah. he's new. And like when we're coming up, well, you know, by the time the new season starts, we'll be on the verge of three, three years. Yeah. Three, that, a team cycle almost, three yeah, years, yeah. basically. Yeah. And, you know, you, you, there, there has been progression. And obviously making the um, quarterfinals of the Champions League this year is, is progression. Getting in, Staying in the top four, yeah, that's brilliant. But at some point, there's, there's got to be a bit more than that. Um, he is getting the play, the sort of players he wants. Unfortunately, City are moving ahead faster. Um, United are going to spend like mm. drunken sailors again this summer. Um, I would expect that Arsenal, one way or another, will go on a splurge. Chelsea, God knows what happens there. Um, uh, so it's 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 going to be difficult. Um, I think starting off by winning a cup of some description would be. But, uh, do you buy into this idea that? Um Liverpool are maybe, well, beyond City's quality. Liverpool are actually really well positioned to win the Champions League because of how good they usually can attack better sides. 
Um, well, they can attack better sides well, but they concede a lot of goals mm. against them. And I think we're going to find in the latter stages of the Champions League, uh, teams with better compact structures yeah. who can defend at a much higher level than, I don't know, Brighton. Yeah. The, you know, the, you, you know, you can spank Brighton, but you know, it's a, it's going to be a different thing. I mean, everyone looked at Juventus and those displays against Tottenham, and Tottenham are a good side. Yeah. And there's a lot of Liverpool fans who go, "Oh, I wouldn't mind Juventus." I'm telling you, they yeah. they're, they're, they're difficult teams to beat. They've got they've got nows. Liverpool don't have a lot of nows. Yeah, yeah. They do the same things, and there's a lot to be said for knowledge and cynicism. Yeah. Um, and where would you place? Where would you place this season in the context of the FSG ownership of the club? Does it feel like a kind of like progress is being made towards some kind of climax? Oh, well, definitely progress being made. It's, um, I mean, there wasn't a lot in the first five, five, six years. Uh, finally, they've got the man. They love Klopp. Perhaps they overindulge him too much. You know, I'd be a, I'd, I'd, I'd ask harder questions of him at times. Uh, but certainly, they've, you know, they've, they've done. The accounts are out today, and um, they're all positive. So in that sense, everything's rosy. But at some point, it'll always come back to the, the Shankleyism. You know, Liverpool exists to win trophies. It'll come back to that, and and then people will be asking. Them. The problem is, they've, they've done a, they've done a good job in the sense that they've made the club wash it, wash its face. They're not going to pump huge amounts of money into it. Um, and and there's the stability there, but people are going to want more than that. Mm. How, how long do you think Klopp gets without bringing home some silverware? I certainly think there's another couple of years. I think um, I think this time next year, uh, if they're not achieving the same as they are now, people start asking questions. But I think if you get into a routine of top four knockout stages of the Champions League, that, that Arsenal routine, yeah, um, I think people will start demanding a little bit more. How much do you think that is excused, though, by the fact that, well, ultimately, City's, City's super fortune united something close to it? Well, I mean, uh, the fact is, City have made a fair effort to comply with financial fair play. Yeah. And, you know, everyone forgets that. Uh, united, again, um, they, they, they generate a great deal of revenue and spend. Uh, Liverpool should be able to spend the approximate amount, I mean, obviously not as much, but again, then you've got to target the right players. Recruitment has been a problem over the years. They've spent on, spent badly on. It hasn't so much been the money they've spent, it's been the players they've spent it on. Yeah. You know, the, the Markovic's and, and to a certain extent, Emre Jean, although some people love him, you know, when they come in, they were supposed to be the replacements for Suarez and don't worry, they're going to like change the way the Premier <laughs> League play, is played. Uh, don't think so. Um, so it's that sort of, what, the, the biggest flaw with Fenway's whole tenure has been they thought they were cleverer than everyone else yeah. in football. That's been the biggest flaw. Uh, they're not bad owners. In fact, you could do a very, very much worse. But, um, but you know, less cleverness, more, but, more but basic thinking. Haven't the signings of Mane, Firmino and Salah been an indication that they are clever and they have been able to, to buy well? Well, they've yet to put in that department well, but uh, uh, look at the midfield, look at the defence. Mm. Um, you know, until until what? A matter of weeks ago, Mignolet was still in goal. <laughs> and the first day he turned up at Melwood, everyone knew it was a, he was a wrong in, yeah. in the sense for Liverpool football. <laughs> yeah. but, uh, maybe it's to do with, we were t- you were, I think you hinted at this earlier, um, 
a stats a stats based approach to buying players is naturally go is for, for quite obvious reasons going to be better at identifying good attacking players and good defensive players mm. and that, that that stats based approach hasn't been able to find the right defensive players well one of the, one of the uh, discussions I had again with a very senior person at the club I said I'm, I'm a big believer in stats. This, you know, sort of. Mm. Some people don't think so. I mean, I, I, I started my uh, journalism career in the states and in, in American football, and um, and I think stats are a brilliant tool. You can balance them, obviously. With a, it, it's like fo- football's poetry, not mathematics. Mm. You know, but poetry has a meter. It has a rhythm, a mathematical rhythm. Yeah. So, you, so, so you know, you, you can do that. I said to a senior figure there, I said, the problem is when you can show me a stat for the use of space when the opposition have the ball, yeah, I, then I'll buy into the stats thing completely because you can watch a game. And I've been there with loads of fans, you know, over the years, different players. I can remember Ronnie Wheel and Haman. And people, oh, he's done nothing all day. And what he'd done mm, yeah, is he'd just yeah. go into an area where, you know, the opposition fullback looks down the line. And there's Ronnie Wheel, and he thinks, oh, no, no. And he goes square. Yeah, yeah. And allows Rush to, 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 to press, you know, yeah. and, and allows the team to push up the pitch. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and, and, and people look at him and say, oh, what's he done? He hasn't run very far. He hasn't made many passes. Yeah. He scored no goals. And yet, his influence on the pattern of play was massive. Yeah. And, and that, that, is, that is me problem with it. And that is me problem with trying to grade defenders statistically you know you need to you need to watch them and you need to and you yeah. also need to take into account the characters i mean you know it's it's, it's all right getting Lovren, who looks great at southampton when he's got you know he's got uh schneidlin in front of him mm. directing where and, to and go. a low pressure situation yeah exactly yeah. and then you know you, you, you put him in front of the cop and and you've got um you've, you've got you've got the captain who's more worried about his game getting forward yeah and um and he's in a different world and he hasn't got the mentality to cope with yeah, what was what were Klopp's Borussia Dortmund team like defensively? Did they have these same problems? Um, well, their two title-winning seasons, they were. I think they conceded something like twenty goals. I think there was one season they conceded fewer than twenty goals. There is a high-profile European manager who is very dismissive of those two title wins and describes <laughs> them as Germany was rubbish at the time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but Bayern were doing nothing, which is which is a bit harsh, I think. <laughs> very harsh. Yeah. Well, but I also think, I mean, he, he had a um, he had a recruitment department who got players informed, didn't he? He's never, yeah, he's never. Well, it was Mislintat, yeah, yeah. yeah. And he's, they had they had protection in front of the defence, which which goes back to what, what mm. Tony was saying earlier that they had uh, they had Bender. Uh, uh, they, they actually, they also had that Dortmund team had some. I remember being looking through the squad very early in I think the first season when they won it and you know, when they were kind of making waves. And had some kind of really senior figures that have been at the club for years, like the goalkeeper, uh, Kel. Um, and it, it's almost that, n- that nous that you spoke about. Mm. Yeah. So are those the, those those in, in, like intangible factors that you were just describing in the context of Ronnie Whelan, are those the things which you think are most missing from this Liverpool side? Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, uh, leadership. And personality. One of the things Fenway, when they first come in, they were very keen on is make Liverpool the go-to destination for Europe's young players. Mm. Up-and-coming young players could go and play and you know and, and learn the trade there all together and go on to win things. Great idea. They found a load of young players in and there was no leadership. <laughs> they didn't know what to do when things went wrong. And, and the problem is, one of the problems they've had is that as these 
players have grown and they've had no success, then they've looked abroad and thought, well, mm, I'll go somewhere else. Only two ways that you keep players. One is paying the going rate in wages or winning things. And Liverpool don't quite yeah. do either. I always thought of Ferguson was actually brilliant at that in terms of just bringing in the right character at the right time. I mean, because even in relation to that, like Chelsea have gone to a similar policy now where they've tried to ape Real Madrid and kind of sign those 21 to 24-year-olds so they have the next generation of stars and kind of even potentially in sales or whatever. But but, have, but then it's left them kind of short of key areas. Whereas Ferguson kind of, I mean, in 01 even, he wanted the Canio, only mm. despite his age, brought in Larson in 06, 07. And he, he always had just just knew that, that specific like figure. Sheringham, yeah. Van der Sar, yeah. Evra... Ferguson was absolutely brilliant at, a, at signing like a 34-year-old who wasn't going to do much, but just yeah. added something intangible. Yeah. Even like even someone like Andy Gorham or you know, <laughs> or Laurent yeah. Blanc or you know, some just somebody like that to, I don't know, give give people a kick, kick up the arse. I don't know. Yeah, and give them a little bit of uh, benefit of the knowledge. Yeah, completely. Um, Tony, you you got a new book out. Can you mm. tell us about it, please? Uh, it's called Two Tribes. It's about the 1985-86 season, which was the year after Heisel, which football was at its lowest point in its history. Um, the, um, the, the, the obviously being a major disaster at um, in, in the European Cup final, 39 people died, and uh, Liverpool fans were responsible, um, among other reasons. And uh, it, it, this happened in the middle of a massive political um, battle in in the United Kingdom where uh, the Thatcher governments were trying to crack down on uh, people they regard as the enemy within um, the miners um, sort of most famously the city of Liverpool uh, which was resistant through the the so-called militant council and set against this backdrop and uh, football uh, Thatcher immediately after Heisel demanded that the FA withdraw the uh, English clubs from Europe, and uh, basically the contention of not only me but a uh, Peter Reid and Neville Southall and various other characters is that uh, football was the biggest expression of working class culture, and it was wasn't just about Heisel; it was an assault on working class culture. Uh, and against this backdrop, it's how football football reinvigorated itself. And, um, and and basically started off on the path to the Premier League. How did football reinvigorate itself? Well, uh, a couple of things. Um, I, I think it, it, was a, it was a fantastic year in terms of competition. Manchester United started the season off with a 10-game win and run, uh, league win and run, went 15 games unbeaten. The headline said, give it to them now, and then they promptly fell apart. West Ham were magnificent. Uh, Frank McAvenny come down from Scotland. They weren't on television. It was banging in the goals 18 before Christmas. Um, he became the first anonymous superstar. You know, he's... Um, uh, uh, the, the, uh, what ITV's on the ball took him across uh, Waterloo Bridge and was, we're interviewing people, saying, oh, are you a West Ham fan? Yeah, yeah, what do you think of McAvenny? Oh, he's brilliant, he's superb. Um, would you like to meet him? And they, they didn't <laughs> recognise me. Or was that, it was the treatment of blackout, wasn't it? Yeah, because yeah. one of the reasons is football, at its worst point, picked a fight with television. Good idea. And wasn't on, wasn't on the screens until the new year. Can you tell us a bit about that fight and how that happened? Uh, well, the, 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 as usual, the likes of Ken Bates and, you know, uh, you know sort of, and the chairman ran the league, Ron Nodes, Crystal Palace, uh, the late Ron Nodes, they, um, they thought that the thing that would kill, fo- kill football is live television coverage. 
So they didn't want us on live. They were right. It's <laughs> 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 proven them, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's um. So anyway, when 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 Baytac's like the proud father of the Premier League, and yeah. you know, no, look look what look where he created. He tried to stop it. He tried to stop the monster growing a bit. Um, and so, I mean, over frankly ridiculous sums of money, they um, they, they basically. Um, they basically said no to ITV and BBC, who were acting as a cartel. Yeah. So, um, so football was off the screens. Um, but in that time, there was a lot of exciting stuff going on. And uh, and after Christmas, when the, the, the television came back, a, a brilliant title race developed between Everton and who were the champions and Liverpool uh, under Kenny Dalglish in his first year as player manager. And it's all stream. You know, we all know what happens in the end. But it, it sort of it built up towards the, the, the FA Cup final at Wembley, uh, Liverpool and Everton. So the most under scrutiny city in football. You know, who, who a year before had been involved in scousers involved in Heisel and the deaths of thirty nine people were you know sort of beamed to the world. And everyone was waiting for. Waiting for you know, sort of waiting for it all to go wrong. Scousers couldn't behave themselves in large groups, and you know all. all the first chapter has that amazing uh, story of when the football writers were called into Thatcher, and I think in you you quote Brian Glanville's account of it and, and his impression of Thatcher, oh, yeah, and, yeah. It, and the way she kind of tried to her. Well, I suppose as you point out, it was almost her issue with everybody. She tried to distill everything into a black and white issue. Oh, but it was Trumpian. Yeah, you know it's um, uh, you know full of uh, full of bluster and um. And uh, you know, a, an obsession with fake news. Um, yeah. You know, there, there are so many parallels between it and today, and you know, and, and, and the political discords within the country. Well, it, well, even on that, I mean, uh, actually, uh, when I was doing this piece two weeks ago on how kind of football has never been more influenced by geopolitics in terms of how how many of the top clubs are directly owned by these kind of major kind of political powers now. It, it was influenced by politics in a, in a different way, but almost to the same extent. I mean, mm. your book, like, it was on my mind as I was kind of researching the piece. I mean, and even throughout the book, the amount of kind of, of political undercurrents that you, are just unavoidable that you cannot discuss throughout all this. Oh, with, without a doubt. I mean, you know, football is, is always a, a good uh, indicator uh, if you're taking the temperature, the political mm. mood of a country. You yeah. know, and, um, and in, in this very... D- divisive year, the most 1980 between 1984 and 1985. That that period was the most violent and divisive year in my life mm-hmm. that, that I've experienced. Not personally violent, you know, one of them, but it, you know, it's a, it, a lot of the same worrying sorts of developments yeah. were occurring then. They're occurring. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Why do you think Thatcher lost her battle against football? Or would you put it that simply? Um, did she lose? Slavon Bilic claims that she... Uh, she only was on TV recently. Actually, yeah, giving, that's giving a funny, like foreign misconception that yeah. people have is that is that that like Thatcher beat hooliganism yeah. in in the UK rather than, I mean, t- Tony, you'll be able to speak about this better than me, but you'll be aware of that of that misconception, right? Yeah, it's a complete misconception. Um, you know, so, so hooliganism was on the way. Heisel was a massive shock to everyone's system. And, you know, coming after um, coming after Birmingham, where Ian Hambridge was killed when a wall collapsed on the last day of the season against Leeds. Um, and although it wasn't hooliganism, the Bradford fire shocked everyone. Mm. And I think everyone took a step back from the brink, uh, even in that, that particularly violent year. I mean, you got to remember, not not only was the miners striking, there was violence everywhere there. You know, every night we're getting beamed in from Northern Ireland into yeah, our yeah. living rooms. You know, street rioting. It was there was a, there was an atmosphere of you know down and down at Wappen. Um, you know, the, the that was the, the move to Wappen, the brutal. Um, the times. Yeah, extinguishing of the print unions. Mm. You know, and and the uh, the scenes of anarchy on the picket lines. You know, were taking place. So it was a really d- divisive year. And what Tachi did? She vote. She she associated football with two things. With um, with. with with the sort of industrial action striking, one of the first things she said after Heisel, she said, "You know, uh, you know, th- these people, you know, sort of, I'm not surprised. You know, you, you look at the the, the records and striking. Well, what's that got to do with? You know, mm. it's, uh, and um, and and she also associated it with um, with, with, with being traitorous, to, to quote um, Alf Garnet, um, because she, famously she went to, to she went to Hamden, didn't she, for um, a Scottish Cup final, and saw the Celtic ends where they were all flying tricklers, <laughs> and said, "Why are they flying the flag of a foreign country?" So she she associated f- football fans with that. But what was was an expression of working class culture that she wanted to destroy, and in a sense, yeah. that's happened. And does actually you point out the contradiction in the book, then, especially not when. Essentially, so some of the worst for violence abroad were basically you know, right-wing Tories. And then, I mean, with that kind of going into the race issue, I mean, the, the anecdote with John Barnes and the plane to Chile is incredible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, so the, the, the England fans who went abroad and caused so much trouble were, were classic Thatcherites. Yeah. You know, mm. little Englanders. And, um, and you know, it's a, I, I, I'm John Barnes is still rightly annoyed at the abuse he took from, you know, uh, on a plane uh, when he'd scored against Brazil. Mm. And, you know, and he, he was getting called the M-word on the plane and none of the FA officials or none of the press yeah. actually said anything. But what, wasn't it national front members actually say, so making sure he could hear, basically, yeah. it's only 1-0 because a goal by one of them doesn't count. Exactly, yeah, like, yeah. Should... And, you know, it's, uh, I mean, it was the year that there was riots in... Uh, um, there was riots in Hansworth, there was riots in Brixton. You know, everyone talks about, you know, Cyril Regis died the other week, and mm. the, the great Cyril Regis. Everyone talked about three degrees, which has got racist undertones in itself, and uh, I'm not having that. But, you know, that, like, right, Hansworth, and one of the things that's about in the book is that, you know, the three black players at West Brom, they, they developed just a matter of miles from Enoch Powell's constituency, a handful of miles, mm. you know, five. He made the speech 
only a couple of miles away, the, 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 the infamous rivers of blood speech, a couple of miles away. And then in 1985, Hansworth was burning. You know, so for all this, oh, you know, great three degrees and well, well, the cultural change, I'll tell you what, those boys were swimming against the tide. Yeah. How political were, were the, the terraces in those? And, and how politicised did the average fan become as a result of what was happening you know, externally? Unfortunately, love was politicised in, in a, a sort of right-wing way. You know, there was lots of NF, NF infiltration. They tried it in Liverpool in '78, and they got um, they got repulsed rather bloodily. For us, you know, we we were very Liverpool and Everton were very left-wing fan base, and where, you know there was. I mean, I remember going to Wembley in um, 1984, you know, during the minor strike for the League Cup final, and I, I was really proud. You know, so I was on the train coming down, everyone was wearing red or blue. I support Liverpool City Council badges and singing, you know, Arthur Skurgle, we'll support you evermore. And the Londoners, they looked at us as if we were from another planet, a dirty, ugly, horrible planet. And you know what? We liked that because we were. We were from a planet where we believed that that it was important to keep the framework of society and to keep the community. The funny thing is, the Milton tendency and Thatcherism were two sides of the same coin. Yeah. It was a revolt against one nation Tory patronage. And what, what, what both sides were saying is the grammar school people on, in, in the Thatcherite thing, you know, the, uh, the, the, the sort of lower... The, the the middle middle class were saying we want a slice of it and what the militant tendencies say we want opportunity for everyone to go as far as we can and they both wanted the same sort of thing which was the end of that 1950s one nation Toryism and um and, and both were radical in their own way um but the 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 Thatcherites threw the baby out with the bathwater with the there is no society and I know people say she didn't mean there is no society in, in the actual interview she gave, because she goes on to qualify her. But that's the message she sent out to everyone. Th 30 years on, it's safe to say that, unlike back then, you can now argue that the state and capitalism are on the same side as football, rather than competing forces. Hmm. Would you say that the state has co-opted football, or that football has co-opted capitalism? Oh... I think they've met in the middle. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's the coward's answer. Um, but they, they have they've met in the yeah. middle. But I think people suddenly uh, the realization came that football could generate uh, more income and more publicity than, say, the um, the on the make local businessman, you know, mm. ever dreamt of. Um, Ken Bates again. Um, <laughs> Um, uh, get the lawyers no <laughs> um, the, and, and, and I think once that realisation come the, uh, the sanitisation of the game people think that uh, Hillsborough was the, 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 the major catalyst towards the Premier League I contend it was Heisel yeah. I think the, the forces of history were heading that way after Heisel and I think there became a realisation that football could be a profitable business it could be a, a sanitised business and it could be a, a a more positive reflection of English, in particular, culture worldwide, than it had been. Actually, how politicised do you think football itself was, and, and footballers? Because it's 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 a debate that's coming up now, I suppose, with especially around kind of Pep Guardiola and the ribbon, and even who footballers are willing to be employed by or take their money off. Um, and, so, and there's absolutely no kind of, or there's very very little. Uh, dissent or or kind of any any sense of sense of debate within football 
or from footballers. Do you, do you, does that ch- has that changed much from then? Uh, they were all soft Tories, really. They, yeah. they all they all voted Tory because they thought their income tax would be lower, which you know is uh, is the classic thing, mm. isn't it? Uh, there were there were a few exceptions, you know, the likes of Peter Reid. You know, obviously he was from Eton. Um, you know, uh, Harold Wilson had been their MP, and he was you know uh, there, there was a, a couple of people at Liverpool. Um, they were, but most of me there didn't really care or were you know sort of vote Tory. Yeah. Um, I mean, they, they, they had a great realisation, I think, the Liverpool and Everton players at the time, that given the beleaguered state of the city, that they were flag bearers mm. for it. And that, I mean, at a time when Liverpool was, as a city, was under political, social and economic pressure, that they were the people who w- w- gave us an expression of our identity in a positive way, mm. you know. And, you know, it wasn't just all about strikes. We dominated Europe. Civic the, pride. Yeah, exactly. And um, and there, there was a consciousness of that. But I don't think they were um, they were very political in that sense. As ever, footballers they go, they train. They, yeah. In those days, they drink. Now they go and play PlayStation, um, uh, and you know, and they live in a bubble. Yeah. And I think that, that that's the way it'll always be. I think it shows how how depoliticized footballers are nowadays that Juan Mata's common goal campaign which is an incredibly laudable thing from yeah. a, an obviously really great guy but it's not it's not a kind of like world changing yeah. thing that he's it's doing and yet it stands out so much yeah. as do the other players like Chiellini who yeah, got yeah. involved on his behalf mm-hmm. because yeah. it's so we are now so it's now so unusual to see a footballer take that kind of stance mm. yeah and, and also they've, they've become even more in one way, media savvy, people say, but in another way, bland. You know, it's yeah. a, a footballer speaking out. I mean, you know, it, it, you know, you, you look at uh, James McCarthy and the the poppy thing, yeah. which I oh, McLean, sorry, McLean, yeah. sorry. Um, someone's getting bullets in the post, and it's my fault. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, James. Um, uh, you know, you, you you look at that, and of course, the way the the, the FA have tied themselves up in knots with the Guardiola thing. Um, yeah, I, I, I think. Uh, one, I think what's depoliticized football more and more is the link between the communities, certainly in the Premier League yeah. level. The communities and the clubs has been stretched to breaking points, um, and, and that has an awful lot to do so with it. So they don't have the kind of inherent connection that former players did. Mm. And it just, I mean, even the money probably has a separate effect in that way, too, I suppose. Now, I know it's a bit of a cliche, but it comes back to the kind of the Michael Jordan line, you know, Republicans wear sneakers, too. So in the sense that they've become they've become such brands in and of themselves mm. that there's that kind of prevailing view that if we say anything political, it could alienate what we sell, even if it's not directly by them, but people around them and just to kind of the um, the, 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 the conditioned like that. Yeah, well, yeah. Interestingly enough, on Michael Jordan, he hit that position that he took mm. in the 90s has, I think, now been a little bit undermined by the current generation of NBA stars like LeBron and Steph yeah. Curry actually being more political right. and more vocal than Michael Jordan could ever be. And he now he now looks slightly out of, out of date. Yeah. Out of and Tiger Woods. Tiger Woods, who, who you know, basically refused to become a, a, you know, a, 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 the vanguard of any movement. And you know, you look at the, uh, you know, sort of the, the response to the, the anthem and taking the knee. You know, I think uh, mm. there's been a, a, a great awareness amongst American athletes of the political environment and that you know the, the the dangers it presents. And I, I think it, it's brilliant that they stand up. I'd love to see my, I'd love to see footballers. I'd love to see athletes being more politicised and speaking up more. Yeah, I mean, this this comes down to, I think, well, financial motives, doesn't it? 
And, and this is essentially what globalization does. It creates a, a consensus around its own virtue that becomes almost impossible to challenge or even opt out of. Uh, you know, this is, this is kind of how globalization works. And, and I suppose explains why so few fans are, are ready to speak out against, you know, in, in any meaningful way against their own clubs, against, you know, the, the, the way that football is going. It doesn't, you know, globalization doesn't, doesn't say we're going to, you know, we're going to erode your democracy. We're going to sever the links between your club and its community. It says, look, here's Janino and Branco at your football club. <laughs> you know, pray, wonder at, at, at all these wonderful global gifts. And, and, then, and, and then by the time it's kind sort of seeped into your, your game, it's almost too late. Yeah, yeah. And, and then then you start aping that 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 dumbass democracy. You know, Michael O'Brien are wrong. Yeah, I think that's. I think what Johnny says is very much been the case amongst fans of Manchester City and Chelsea, who have said, I think we can. I think I can say say this on air. Who have said embarrassingly little about the ownership of either Abramovich or Sheikh Mansour over the years, and have kind of get offended that it's been brought up recently, yeah. which is something that yeah. I mean, I can Chelsea say Chelsea fans with Abramovich. Are exactly the same. Uh, I, I, I don't put the Glazers on the same level, no. in the slightest. But yeah, people don't don't want to speak out about these things. Well, I mean, we, we've seen another issues as well. You know, people are checking the decency at the turnstiles. Hmm. Yeah, that's true. Actually, yeah. And I um, there, there is this t yeah. In, in, in terms of that, the kind of decency at the turnstiles. Again. This intense tribalism seems to take kind of it's obviously we don't see the violence of the eighties, but there's a much more kind of neurotic tribalism these days. I think now obviously kind of yeah. social media distills that, but it is it's, it's interesting that. Yeah, I think I I I noticed that too. I think it's a function of people being able to identify as fans of their club endlessly, like twenty four seven. Yeah. With every like every time you go on social media, every you can you can like be active as a fan of Club X. Yeah, in a way which. You know, 30 years ago, you might go, you know, you could go to a game twice a week, you could buy a fanzine, you could buy a program, you could go to the game with your mates, but it's fewer, it's fewer like actions, if you yeah. know what I mean. Well, the, th the thing is, people consume the, the football in a different way these days. I mean, one, they, you know, most of them get it through telly. Yeah. And, when, you know, in 1985, 86, the year we're talking about in particular, the only way you could see for the first half of the season, live football was go with the match yeah. in fact for most of my lifetime the only way you could see live football was go with the match and it creates a different dynamic a different experience you know it's, I, I see people you know um you know, so it's on Twitter, you know, they, they, they charge you and they've got the, the bio, like, you know... Um, Granite Jacket is a gooner. Yeah, or, <laughs> you, know, I, 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 you know, I I bleed red and white, Yeah, you yeah. know, and things like that and you're like, really? Yeah, and also, supporting a football team never, never, was never about kind of just forgetting about the football because it's one thing I've thought, even in, in relation to the game on Saturday, you tweet an opinion about the game and it feels like no one can take it as a football opinion in and of itself anymore. It's always, it's us against them. Oh, yeah, you're, yeah. You're, you've, you've said that because you're biased. Well, no, it's just what, what I think about the football. Yeah. Fans aren't any more passionate today than they were 30 years ago. I mean, you've got diehard fans. You've got people who, who did bleed red and white. They just didn't feel the need to inflect every single action they, they, they took in, in an average day with it. Yeah, but with the other thing is, when, when you used to have to go the match, you go the match, mm. you'd watch it, you'd get beat, and you'd be pig sick. You know, what did you do? You went out for a drink with your mates, or, yeah. you know, and, 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 and an hour later you'd be laughing. Now, in anger, you take to social media. <laughs> and, and that, I think, is connected to what you said earlier about Trent Alexander-Arnold apologising on Instagram because, they got, because he played badly and they were yeah. lost. Like, that expect, that, the idea that you can, you can demand, you have a right to win 
and you can demand that and therefore by losing the players have let you down and have to apologize yeah, yeah. is connected to that weird sense of entitlement yeah well and I, I remember I, I was there to say um that the day that Hansen had his nightmare there and we got beat you know we didn't want to lynch Hansen no one was slaughter him you know we were a bit like the kid didn't do very well, did he? You know, he's always yeah. didn't, it? Uh, you know, he didn't do very well. You know, he's like, yeah, you know, don't think he's going to make it. And then it was gone, you know. Yeah, you, yeah. You moved on. Well, that, and it's probably a bit rich for the media to be uh, talking about this. But, it, I mean, because of kind of social media and how instant everything is now, every defeat gets built up into a defining result. Even the same, I, I was thinking of it as well after the Spurs game on Wednesday where, you know, this was supposedly a complete bottle job that said everything about the state of the club. Or it was just a defeat. Like, okay, they got some things wrong, but just lost to they, a very good team. They, they were very good and they, they just got beaten by a team with a little more experience who's actually been to two of the previous yeah. three yeah. Champions League finals. Yeah. Coming back to expectations and grievances, what how legitimate are the grievances of the West Ham United fans who went on the pitch on Saturday? And what does that tell us about ownership and fans today? Uh, I would say entirely legitimate. I mean, there's so many. I was actually, t- I, I'm, I'm, I think we're doing a piece today on it, but if you're, to, if you're to list the number of problems at that club right now, it's actually, and the number of legitimate complaints, it's uh, with, with obviously the main one now being this kind of botched move to the stadium and everything around it, and, and the running of the team. I mean, it's just, it, it goes on and on. Mm. Actually, I'm just sorry to cut across, but don't tell you once again in there, but West Ham were given the chance to condemn some of the uh, issues that happened last week and didn't. And I think one of the, one of the reasons was they didn't want to inflame the situation. Well, I, I, I thought it was a great piece on uh, the, the West Ham, you know, sort of the, the problems from the right wing groups and the ICF. ICF. <laughs> uh, funny. Um, that's a different subject. But yes, I am laughing at them. It's, um, it, 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 um, it was a great piece. But I think West Ham's owners could have got away with it all. At the stage in Upton Park, I yeah. think I think the the, the big the, the biggest issue of it all is that that move into a crushingly unsuitable stadium, chasing cash and chasing this idea that they were going to make the step to become a mm. global powerhouse club, rebranding the badge. And when they moved from Upton Park, they left the soul there. Um, and West Ham, I mean, sadly, have run on soul for years. Yeah, I mean, I'll, even in that, I suppose. To be honest, I was one of those ones initially kind of convinced of the stadium move because I, I thought there is an opportunity for someone to be a global London club because it's such an advantage to be based in London. Oh, yeah, yeah. But I do wonder, I mean, I was actually talking to Ken early uh, yesterday. We, like, he was kind of making the point that, um, I mean, to be a that global kind of London club and gather all these kind of floating, floating kind of tourists and all that, you need to have some sort of uh, international status. And Ireland's always kind of almost been the first... Um, the, mm. Kind of the first staging post for for that with, with, with the English league, yet basically we were saying how West Ham, even despite being one of, what, one of England's made ten, twelve biggest clubs in Ireland, they're actually not that well supported. Well, they, they don't know. Claret and blew up Lachintown. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're associated with yeah, a, a, yeah. a certain kind of Englishness. Yeah, know, yeah. So they're yeah. not going to pick up. But that's mm-hmm. it. and at the core of the club isn't the possibility of more of more support else. The core of the club is actually it's very it's al- it's almost like one of the most mm-hmm. uh, Distinctive and idiosyncratic fan bases in the Premier League. Yeah, it is. Well, it is. And the mad thing is, the East End was built on immigrants. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, you know, it's, um, you know, the anti Semitic thing and all that. The East End was full of immigrants from Eastern Europe, full of Irish. Yeah. You know, and, and, uh, 
and now it's full of you know people from the subcontinents. They should be trying to embrace that. Mm. Yeah. I, I find it very um, ironic that these guys, the, you know, these uh, troublemakers, are calling themselves the ultras. It's a very European term <laughs> for oh, a far yeah, right yeah. group. Well, and, oh, yeah, they love Lazio. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. 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 No, yeah. It's funny. It, it kind of speaks to what we were talking about earlier in the sense that they were ch in chasing global profile and ultimately money mm. by putting London in their badge and everything. They've managed to basically dissociate, disconnect themselves from their local fan base or the, and local kind of community which gave them support. And they've basically fallen between two, two stools. Yeah, yeah. So they're now, they haven't got the global profile. Nobody wants to play for them. Nobody wants to manage them. They've got David Moyes as manager. They'll probably be in the championship next season. Yeah. And all their fans hate them. Like every, like <laughs> but when Golden Sullivan came in, they kind of played up the fact that we're East End boys, yeah. we're locals, yeah. and this is almost a return to our roots. Mm -hmm. And the lesson here really, I suppose, is that it's so much more important who what, what your owners do than who they are. Mm. Yeah, mm. without a doubt. Yeah, it's, it's almost an example of how the, the, you know, the, the, path, the free pass given to the English owner which has always been, I mean, it's very easy mm. to get, mm. uh, like, it's very easy to get nostalgic about a golden age of English ownership, which never existed. Like, owners have been destroying football clubs. Yeah, owners have been destroying football clubs in England for, uh, you know, for, I don't know, mm. for 150 years now. Like, there's nothing new about yeah. this. But yeah. obviously, if you are, if you, d you know, having that, like you said, having that kind of local authority, that local credit, uh, seems to buy you a bit of extra time. Well, the mad thing is as well, they're, they're all chanting, you know, sack the boards. Well, how are you going to sack the owners mm. for one and, you know, and say, you know, uh, oh, you know, we want someone to come in and buy the club. Well, there's not many people in the market yeah. for football clubs. You know, Mike Ashley wants to sell the club. Yeah. He said he'll sell the club. <laughs> no sign of that happening. Uh, you, you've, you know, at, at Sunderland, Ellis Short, I'll give it away. People who've looked at the books have gone, nah, no thanks. Uh, actually, uh, does that point to a potential problem for football, maybe, especially with this kind of undercurrent of the uh, that's always been there of a Super League that uh, owners want the, the, the flashy big clubs now but everyone mm. else now is, is, is increasingly getting left behind well yeah and, and they, they, when they moved to the Olympic Stadium and they, they changed the badge they thought they were going to turn themselves into one of the flashy big clubs yeah. and it doesn't quite work that way they will be one of the biggest and flashiest clubs in the championship no doubt <laughs> <laughs> I think Moyes will save them do you, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I, my, my instinctive sense, having seen Saturday, and I, I wasn't there, but it's just, I don't think they can recover from it. I don't think they have, I don't think they have the right ingredients in the dressing room or, or Moyes or mm. the boardroom or anywhere at the club. I think it's so... Well, it's two, two so three goal defeats in a row. It's gone south for them at just the wrong time. There is just enough time. What was it? Nine, nine ten games left? Yeah, There's nine, just yeah. enough time for them to turn and it around. The but only thing that I think will save them is the, the, the where people in where states in that league. They're queuing yeah. up to go down. Yeah. <laughs> Who's going, actually? We've got Southampton, probably. No goals. Yeah. West Brom. Of West Brom are gone, aren't they? Yeah. Uh, Huddersfield can't beat 10-man Swansea. 78 minutes. Mm. Couldn't, couldn't score a goal. Crystal Palace. Jesus, it's a bit of badly. They are queuing <laughs> up. Yeah. So, so that that'll save West Ham. Yeah. <laughs> On that optimistic note, we're going to draw the podcast to a close by awarding our free Sevilla shirt to one of our lucky winners. Uh, the Sevilla shirt was provided by our friends at New Balance. Um, the winner is Joe Arditi, uh, with the username Berbatov Boy, who left a very nice review of our podcast on iTunes. Uh, which goes to show that if you're nice about us, we'll give you things. <laughs> um, thank you very much to Joe. We will be sending you the shirt. Um, get, get in touch, isn't it? That's, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll get in touch with you.
Um, Sounds vaguely threatening. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we know where you live, Joe. We know. <laughs> Thanks very much for listening. Thank you, Miguel. Thank you. Thank you, Johnny. Thank you. Thank you, Tony. Always a pleasure. Thanks very much for listening. Please leave us a nice review on iTunes, and we'll see you next week. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 